Hi there, and welcome to the Homestead Education Podcast. Do you have a homestead, farm, or just dream of a rural life? This is a show to help you and your kids grow your own food and grow as a person. I'm your host, Cody Hanner. I'm a homesteader, homeschool mama six, and small town enthusiast. I was raised by an old school rancher and blessed by the grace of God to have been exposed to so much of what rural life has to offer. Join me every week to talk about homesteading, homeschooling, and growth with a homestead education. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Homestead Education Podcast. Um, Today, I am actually recording at our city park. So if you hear some strange noises, that is all that's going on. Um, Today, I have Trevor Hollenbach from Hollenbach Shearing. He is a professionally trained and employed as a sheep shearer in the U.S., New Zealand, Australia, and Austria. Thank you for joining me today, Trevor. Thanks for having me. And did I say all your stuff right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you got it dialed in. That's that's it. Awesome. <laughs> so I'm really glad you were able to make it. We've had a little bit of a um, hard time connecting because you had such a busy spring. Yes. Yeah, spring for sheep shears and for just anyone involved with sheep is going to be pretty busy. Um, typically, uh, you're growing out your lambs at that point if you've got a sheep operation because generally speaking, you're gonna you're gonna lamb out late winter early spring. Um, and then as the heat starts to set in, um, as it has up here for us in North Idaho, um, people start, your phone starts blowing up because people didn't realize it was going to get so hot so soon. They didn't realize they had to shear sheep, whatever the reason is, right. They, they, they come out of the woodwork in the spring and they need you yesterday, every day. So. Well, you know, that actually, it brings up this wonderful conversation that that's why I've created my whole platform is I'm so excited for everybody that is jumping into farming right now and wanting to strive for self-sufficiency, but when you don't know how to uh, care for animals, care for the land, that's where I want to come in and be able to teach that so that I can support people in their endeavors. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, you know, I was joking about it on my podcast uh, a couple days ago that, you know, it's a blissful ignorance. And I'm not saying that in mm-hmm. a contra or in a bad like a way. It, or a, yeah, right. A condescending. Right. That's the word I was looking for. Um, because I always use the example of when I started my speaking tour, my first place that I landed, I had to go get my rental car. And they told me, oh, you have to get an Uber this time of day to get your rental car. <laughs> and I had no clue how to get an Uber. I was so upset. <laughs> But Ubers aren't really a thing in North Idaho. Uh-huh. Yep. I bet you learned Uber pretty fast. I did, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just now like I have people it. get sheep. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah. Uh, they learn very quickly that if you have a wool breed, you're going to need to either figure out how to shear on your own, which is exceedingly difficult if you haven't been trained, or yeah. find somebody who can do it. So that's, <laughs> yeah, it's a big wake-up call for a lot of people. I will say I have sheared a sheep before, and I currently do not own any sheep because I'm not interested in doing it. <laughs> <laughs> when did you share a sheep and in what context it was in college and we all had to try so oh okay i like it i yeah, like it. I I everybody, to... should, everybody should learn or not learn how but everybody should at least attempt to share a sheep and then right. realize maybe this is something i want to outsource right i did you know i did lambs in 4-h but we had a gal mm-hmm. that came and just shared our sheep for right, us right right um but yeah when i was in college i went to chico state and i worked in the sheep mm-hmm. and goat unit so that was nice. part of our part of our job. I also got to be there at five every morning for lambing. So Uh, I bet you did. Yeah. (laughs) That's definitely a thing. It absolutely is because sheep don't like their own children. So you have to find them and put them in a jug. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, you've got, (laughs) you've got such a wide variety of sheep. I think sheep among livestock, I think there are more distinct breeds of sheep in the world than almost any other livestock, I guess. I want to say goats would maybe be a close second, but there are thousands um, of distinct breeds. And then there are even more that we don't know about because you've got, you know, like, let's say you go to some corner of the Himalayas or somewhere, right. Where they're, Mm -hmm. they don't, if you, if you ask them if the breed was, was a distinct breed or a registered breed or anything like that, they'd probably just look at you with a bunch of question marks over their head. Like, what is that? Why would I do that? This is just the sheep that we have in this little corner of our world that works really well for our world. And that's kind of the cool thing about sheep. They just, they, you can, you can hone the breed to fit your needs very quickly really in relation to other, um, 
and other other livestock animals they they adapt very quickly um, and respond very quickly to, to selective breeding so it's kind of a cool thing to see what people come up with yeah that does that's interesting i you know because that was another one is how well they fare up here you know in our really cold weather or oh, i always yeah. wondered how they did well like when i grew up in california and it's a million degrees uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah. So in, with that, you know, it, there are breeds that are, you know, wool, wool breeds as a general rule are cold weather critters. They do really well in the cold. They do not do well in the heat. So in California, so I, I first started working in California. I was, I was born and raised in Ventura County um, okay. and not a County that's known for sheep, but I traveled pretty far to, to, to shear um, some jobs. And um, in California, there are a lot of sheep um, that have to get sheared twice a year because of the heat, because you're trying to beat the heat when it sets in the beginning of the year, right? So people will mm-hmm. shear, I don't know, April, right? And sometimes that's too late for some breeds. It's just too hot in April in some parts of California. And you, you got to do it as early as possible to avoid that because they can't cool off, mm-hmm. right? It's like, a, it's like a husky, right? If you had a husky in, in the desert, you know, in the desert Southwest, it would be cruel not to groom it. Right. You would just make it, it would just lay there panting all day. And that's yeah. what sheep do. Wool breeds, they just lay oh, there and pant. Yeah. They don't, they can't do anything about it. Um, they'll seek shade. Um, and if you, if, if they really have no respite from the heat, they'll suffer, um, health wise. Um, and so in California and in other really hot climates, you have to shear twice a year because the only way, cause you know, you'll get to October and it's hot. And by then they've got, you know, if you shear yes. in April, you know, what is that? You've got six months of wool on there. And so it gets to be, um, mm-hmm. a, a bit of a health issue for the animals. So, um, that's one thing and I think. Even the win- Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to say the winter. Yeah. A little bit of a lag, but the winters are so mild in California too, that like, I, I mean, like as I grew up there too, I often wore sandals all winter long. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But up here, you know, then when you get into a place like well, first in California, a lot of people will opt for um, a hair sheep, right? And hair sheep mm-hmm. are kind of more primitive in their origins and they don't require um, any kind of shearing because they were never bred to produce wool. And wool is the fiber that humans want, right? Because wool is this amazing fiber. But the, mm-hmm. the one not so amazing thing about wool is that it does not fall out. It will just continue to grow indefinitely. Um, so if you don't shear them, they're just gonna, they're gonna suffer pretty, pretty badly. Um, yeah. so yeah. So a lot of people in hot climates will opt for a hair breed. They don't have to shear the downside to a hair breed is you don't get wool and wool is an awesome product. Um, especially on a small, um, you know, if you're looking at small production or if you're looking at a homestead type setting, um, if you were to market your fleeces, you know, individually and send a little picture with the sheep that it came from and have a name on it, you could sell raw fleeces for decent money and get it. You would definitely get your shearing paid for, um, by marketing the fleeces right. individually. So it is a benefit. A lot of people say, Oh, I don't want to have to deal with the wool. Well, mm-hmm. in some cases I would totally understand that, but, um, in a lot of cases it can be a, it can be a good benefit to have it. Um, but then up here, you know, you, you probably wouldn't do well to get a hair breed. Like our, our winters can be so cold mm-hmm. and so unpredictable that unless you had some kind of heated um, shelter for your animals, they probably wouldn't do terribly well, um, you know, and they're not going to want to be out in the snow and walking around on the ice. Um, but if you get a breed that's used to that, you know, a lot of really popular homestead breeds, um, are a little more primitive. They're smaller. So like Shetlands and Icelandics, those animals don't, I mean, they don't care. They'll walk around in the snow all day and not mind that you'll give them shelter and they'll stand outside the shelter in the snow because they don't mind. It just doesn't bother them. Right. But, Sounds like my so great really, Pyrenees. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if you've got Pyrenees to guard your sheep, then it's a win-win because they'll all be out there. in right. the snow. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's really a cool thing. Cause you go to each farm I go to, and it's a totally different situation and people mm-hmm. just find the right sheep that adapt to their situation. So it's fun to watch. Oh yeah. I'm, so it actually brings up a question that like, I think I know the answer to, but I kind of want to cover it. It's like, for example, there are so many sheep in California. People like don't realize how many sheep there are in California, oh, yeah. but I, I never even saw a hair breed as a kid. Well, yeah. maybe I saw some like Navajo, whatever, some friends of mine raised in Hopland, but sheep have, you know, they all have to be sheared and they're all still sheared manually. Right. Yeah. So that's an interesting thing. Um, sheep shearing, unlike a lot of other, um, I guess you maybe call them health related, uh, tasks you have to do with livestock is one of the ones that's probably going to be the last to become automated. Um, it's not really 
something that can be mechanized or automated and i'm trying to like imagine running a sheep like down a um, conveyor belt or something oh yeah oh well people have tried so (laughs) the australians tried to come up with an automated shearing machine that would kind of stretch the stretch the sheep out kind of four limbs forward and rear legs backwards and if i mean it was it didn't work very well. I mean, the anim- I, the videos that I've seen of it, the animal doesn't get hurt. But it just takes ages and it comes, it does not oh. come out looking very good. So a big <laughs> thing when you're shearing is for the customer and well, for the customer, you want to make sure that if they're going to use the wool, that the wool comes off in the longest length possible. And so the, the length of the fiber from the skin to the end on the outside, right? The part that's interfacing with the world, that's called your staple length. So you want as long a staple length as possible for it to be as usable um, as it can be, um, whether you're gonna send it off to a mill or spin it yourself or whatever. And so when you cut that fiber in half, if you take that staple length and you cut right down the middle of it and you're not against the skin with the clippers, then you've destroyed a whole year of wool growth, right? And it's not, it's, it's not really gonna be usable for as much as it could have been usable for. Um, well, so, like if you're selling it, there's a different premium for staple length, right? Yes. Yeah. So depending on what the customer is looking for, um, there are going to be different qualities of the wool that uh, a customer is going to be looking at. Staple length is definitely one of them, depending on the application that it's intended for. But um, yeah, so yeah, I mean, yeah, it could go on, on and on and on about wool quality, but I want right. <laughs> to focus in on what, what do you want to ask me about, about shearing and, and all that? Well, maybe I want to know about wool quality. So we can dive into that. So shoot, oh, if you okay. got questions, dive in. So it, when you have a big herd and they have to be sheared every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, when I say there's like, I've seen tons of sheep, like, you know, I see a lot of people, they'll have, you know, a handful of cows on their property. They'll have mm-hmm. 20 or 30 sheep in the same place that somebody else would have a handful of cows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they need to bring a shear and what do they do with all that wool? So that's going to depend on kind of, well, it's going to depend on a lot of things. One, what breed, <laughs> what, what are some options? Breed? Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So some, some ideas for people, if, yeah. if you're sitting there thinking, okay, I've got 10 sheep or 20 sheep. I don't really know what to do with the wool. I don't know if it's even good enough to sell. Mm-hmm. Get with someone who in your community might be interested in using the wool so that they can get eyes on it and look at your wool and tell you whether or not this is something that could be marketed to hand spinners, for example. There are usually local, you know, hand spinners and weavers guilds and groups. And so reaching out to one of those groups and saying, hey, I've got all this raw wool that has been harvested over the last few years and I've got it stored in my barn. I don't know if it's really worth, you know, selling to someone such as yourselves who would want to use it for this application. Could you look at it? usually they'll be happy to come look at it. Um, if it's not marketable for, for that purpose, then um, some other options you can look at. And this is something I'm going to talk about at the Modern Homesteading Conference this next week. Wool has a lot of really Looking cool forward to that. Yeah, it's going to be a blast. Um, yeah. Some cool applications for wool if you have what might be called marginal quality wool or low quality wool or wool that's suffering from some contaminant like vegetable matter, right? If you've got a bunch of hay and seeds and stickers and things stuck in the wool, because it's like, they're like soft Velcro running around all year long, right? And they just, everything kind of sticks to that wool. So if you're not in really clean conditions, the you wool keep painting these like ridiculous <laughs> pictures that I'm talking about. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, yeah, it, it actually is like that. It's hilarious. Um, <laughs> the stuff they bring in, you, you plop them down on the board for sharing. Nick, like, how in the world did you get this caught in your fleece? And yeah, it's, it's amazing. You know, there'll be wire, there'll be <laughs> seeds and stickers and all manner of things. So if they're not in really clean conditions, this wool would probably not be marketable for that. Uh, purpose for spinning, for weaving, anything that's going to go into something that a human wants to use and look at that's got to look nice. Because if you've got vegetable matter in there, if you've got polytwine in there, if you've got any contaminants in there, those things aren't going to take dye. And so they stand out like, they stick out like a sore thumb in the finished product. So generally, um, if they're, if the wool's contaminated, um, you're going to be looking at other applications for the wool. One thing, like the easiest thing you could do is just compost it. That's by far the okay. easiest thing you could do. It's a it's high nitrogen, um, low phosphorus, uh, slow release fertilizer. Basically, I mean it's just protein, right? And it breaks down, and it's very high in nitrogen, yeah. very 
very low in phosphorus, pretty low in potassium too. I think it's, uh, I think the NPK is nine zero two. So it's oh, excellent wow. if you've got, yeah, if you've got something that, that needs nitrogen, which is like what every plant, right. But you, but you don't want a lot of phosphorus. It's an excellent fertilizer and underground, it will probably break down. It depends on your climate up here. It's probably a little slower, just like we know our compost piles, everything just takes longer up here because half the year it's frozen. Um, mm -hmm. So if you bury wool in most climates, you're looking at probably about a year before it breaks down. But if you um, don't bury it, it can last quite a while, which kind of leads into another use that um, we, we use it for here at, at um, at our home, we have raised beds in the backyard and we put it kind of as a, a top dressing, like a, um, like a mulch over the top oh, of the, okay, the yeah. garden beds. And so it does a few things. <clears throat> the first and like the, what I think is kind of the best benefit to it is it holds in the moisture in the soil. So yeah. when you've, cause, cause, uh, wool is, um, hygroscopic G like hygro H Y G R O. Mm -hmm. hygroscopic which means it holds on to a lot of water i think it's something like 20 to 30 times its weight it can hold on to water and so wow. when you put that on top of the soil and you're running something like drip irrigation or you're just relying on the environment itself for your for the moisture in the soil um, whether it's rain or just just the the ground itself it will retain a ton of moisture for way longer i think it's something like there's a guy blanking on his name um in Utah who did some studies and he makes these little wool pellets actually from commercial wool that's of marginal quality. Oh. And he incorporated it into soil and then used it as a, as a mulch on top. And I think he said he got, um, he had two, you know, he had a control, right. That had nothing on it. And then he had a bed with the same exact plants, same exact location, same soil. And he used these wool pellets and he was able to leave them unattended and unwatered for, I think, seven eight days before seeing effects while the other one, and this Holy is in Utah, cow. the other one yeah. was like two days and the things were wilting and not doing well. Um, so it can be wow. a huge benefit. Yeah. If you're, if you're in a situation where like, let's say you're watering, you don't have a drip system. Let's say you're watering by hand or, or you, or your watering situation is very labor intensive and it is for a lot of people. Or you um, live then, in those places where water costs an arm and a leg. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like we live in town, so we pay for every ounce of water that we use. And um, for us, it's huge. Um, so yeah. to have that, to have that moisture retention in the beds, I mean, and the plants love it because then you're not doing this thing where you flood the soil and then drain it and then flood it and then drain it and flood it and drain it every time you water, right? Because it's not going to evaporate that quickly and it's not going to just run right out, right? The, the, the soil is going to remain moist um, for a lot longer. So, um, and I'm not, I'm, I'm a sheep guy. I, I just learn all this from my wife who deals with all of, she's like the garden bed person. I'm like the animal guy. So, <laughs> so she reports to me that this is an excellent thing. Um, and I can see it. I mean, our garden is 10 times better this year because we used it versus um, the right. previous year that we had, we'd run the garden. Um, and then, well, yeah, it's, but it's, yeah, that's one of the great benefits. The other one, pest control, um, generally speaking, things like slugs and um, snails don't like crawling over the wool um, because of the microscopically, if you look on a wool fiber, it's got scales. It almost looks like a fish yeah. and they're actually quite, an irritant for slugs and snails, um, especially when it's dry, when it gets wet, it, it's it kind of the water provides, I think a little more lubricity so that they're a little less, less sorry, they're, they're less hesitant to go over it when it's wet anyway. Um, so that's kind of a cool benefit. If you do have a slug or snail problem, it kind of can help you, um, kind of abate that issue. And then the last kind of real big benefit to having it as a, as a, um, a mulch or a top dressing for your beds is um, weed control. The weeds just, they have a, a pretty hard time coming up through it. So, you know, you, you, you part the wool and give it like a little circle area where you're, you know, the intended plant can come up and then the rest of the, the seeds, the weed yeah. seeds, I mean, you'll, you'll see them. If you got a really tenacious weed, it might try and push up through it, but it's really hard for it to break through the wool because the wool is just I so was gonna sticky. Say, I'm, I'm going to have to try that because I have massive weed issues. Oh, it's huge. It's really cool. And the, and the awesome thing is you don't have to lay plastic down. You don't have to go buy weed block. You don't mm -hmm. have to do any of this stuff. You just put the wool down and event, eventually it will, it will break down, but it's going to break down in the form of organic compounds and like nice. nitrogen. It's going to be, it's going to be great for the, for the plants as it does break down. Whereas 
plastic sheeting, these other things, as it breaks down, it just becomes a contaminant in the soil. And it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a bit annoying. The only thing yeah. I will say about the top dressing and using it as mulch is that birds will definitely visit and try to pull little strands <laughs> out here and there to take it back to their nests in the spring. That has happened many times. So if you see birds messing with your beds after you put wool in, they're not after your vegetables. They want the wool for their nests. <laughs> well, I already have a blue jay or something that's been messing with my garden anyways. So, oh yeah. Yeah. So anyways, uh, <clears throat> how long does it take to share a sheet? I know this is like a really basic question, but no, no it's a good question though. Yeah. A lot of people wonder that. So, so this is another one of those questions that people cannot stand because my answer is always going to be, well, it depends on a few factors. So, yes. <laughs> so let's, let's just look at, let's look real briefly at the factors. Hey, one of them how long would be, it take you to share yeah. a sheet versus me? <laughs> well, and that's the thing. Even, even if you ask me versus you, you could ask mm -hmm. me versus, uh, you know, one of the guys that wins the golden shears and it's okay, going to be yeah. <laughs> like, a, a quarter of the time, right? It's not, it's not even, yeah. it's not even worth comparing. I mean, it's such a drastic or, difference in time. Or that sheep that like everybody hates, but they keep her around because uh -huh. she has two babies uh -huh. every year. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> the thing. Like I'm willing to, I'm willing to work with those people because I'm like, look, you get two lambs every year out of this girl. I'm happy to work with this girl if she is a difficult one to shear, but right? people who are like <laughs> keeping around really difficult animals and they're not using the wool and they're not <laughs> producing anything. I'm like, why do you have this animal? <laughs> but Pets right? are a totally different thing. Um, so how long does it take to share sheep? Uh, so obviously one big factor that we just talked about is experience. So how much experience does a person have? What breed are we shearing? The finer the wool, generally speaking, the finer the wool, the more wrinkles they're going to have, the thinner their skin is going to be. And that's going to require the shearer to slow down a little bit so as to avoid any skin cuts. Um, so yeah, so experience level of the shearer, breed of the animal, and then how long has it been since that sheep was last shorn? If you, you know, I get people all the time who call me say, hey, I got sheep, I rescued some sheep, whatever it is. <clears throat> I don't know when the last time was that they were shorn. I said, okay, send me a picture. And I can, usually I can tell from the picture if it's been more than two or three years, because it's, it's ugly. It's not pretty. And it's actually, it's <laughs> yeah. actually a great, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, it's an amazing thing that in some climates, they're able to survive the, the heat, the heat exhaustion mm -hmm. and the, and the heat related effects of it. But so let's say we've got really good round sheep with tight skin. They're really muscled, right? And it's only been 11, 12 months since they were sheared. If, if I were shearing it and it was of, of a decent size, um, it would probably be, I don't know if, if I were kind of getting a rhythm going and I had done quite a few of those or that day already, I don't know, two or three minutes, maybe. Um, okay. but people who yeah, are shooting commercially and, uh -huh. and they're on the same sheep, they're probably going to be getting them done in less than a minute each. Wow. So then the whole game so, becomes, it, how can I, you know, go ahead. And that's using electric shears, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. That's a good thing to clarify. So with blade shears, if you were shearing that shape, that same sheep, probably if you're really, really good blade shearer, man, I'm not really into blade shearing. So I don't want, don't quote me on this, but from the videos <laughs> I've seen of people blade shearing, if you're really good, you're getting them done four to five minutes. Then that would wow. be exceptionally fast with blade shears. Generally, blade shearing is going to take a lot longer. My um, sheep would be missing legs afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then, you know, I mean, with a, with a, let's say, so every year um, I go to the University of California Extension in Hopland, which is actually an, ex an extension out of Davis. And I'm not sure. It's funny because I mentioned Hopland earlier too, because that's where my friends who had the Navarro Trails lived. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's yeah. right. But yeah, I've been out to the extension numerous times. Oh, it's an awesome place. And so they have a really cool facility. Yeah. I go out there and I teach a sharing school every spring. Actually, we, we usually do two sessions and um, mm -hmm. two kind of two back-to-back -back beginner courses. And mm -hmm. in the beginning, man, the first couple sheep, it could be 45 minutes, could be an hour. It can take a while. I, I, I designed the course so that the first couple of days we're breaking it up into phases so that students mm -hmm. and sheep aren't sitting on the board for an hour straight because it's pretty stressful for the animal and it's pretty stressful yeah. for the student. So I break it up and I say, okay, let's just do the belly and the crutch, and then we'll stop. We're going to put the animal back, let it get a breather. You can get a breather. Next person's going to do the same thing. And when we're all at the same spot, then we're going to move on to the first leg and start doing the undermine and all, you know, the rest of the phases. Well, and that's what I saw in your info that you really focus on a low stress environment for both the animal and the shearer. 
Yeah. There's no, I mean, I don't, there's no other way to do it and make it sustainable. If you cannot figure out a way to limit the stress to the sheep and the shearer, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's going to be ugly. And you, it, when people, people who don't realize that early enough, just don't shear that long because it's way yeah. too stressful on the, on your body. If you don't figure out a way mm-hmm. to make it as limited in stress as possible to your body and to the animal, you're going to end up fighting the animal. You're going to get burnt out after an hour and you're not going to be able to shear for eight hours straight. Now I only sheared, I sheared commercially in New Zealand, um, in the States a little bit and in Australia. And typically you're going to shear for eight hours in a day. That's shearing time. So your, your day is a lot longer. You do two hours in the morning, then you take a 30 minute break, generally speaking, and you do two hours late morning, take a one hour lunch, two hours in the early afternoon, 30 minute break, two hours to close the day. So you're going to, you're going to shear for eight hours. And so if you don't figure out a way to, to, to limit the stress mm-hmm. to your body and limit your, limit the stress to the animal, you're going to just end up fighting animals all day. And they're, the, the problem with sharing is it's a numbers game, right? You're going to try to get done, get as many done as you can in the day um, as well as you can. But each sheep that comes out of the pen is fresh, right? They're, they've been, they've just been waiting all day for this, for this moment, but you right. are worn out, right? So every sheep that comes out <laughs> is charged up, ready to go all rested and you're not, you're worn out. So you really do have to figure yeah. out a way to try to limit the stress to both you and the, the animal. Well, and I think a lot of people don't realize how big sheep are. They can be very big. Yeah. They can be very big. I think the biggest, wow. the biggest one I've shorn that the, the owner actually knew the weight was 375 pounds and it was oh. a, a Ram, a, uh, a Suffolk Ram. And that was not a fun time. I mean, they're, yeah, they get big. I mean, some mm-hmm. ewes are consistently 200 pounds. So if you can imagine just trying to drag a 200 pound animal over to your board and then sharing it and then letting it go. And then guess what you get to do now? You get to go grab another one and just keep going. And that that's your whole day. Well, I raise hogs, so, you know, I'm oh, yeah. usually not having to wrestle them, but when I do, they are just a solid muscle, like oh, yeah. tube. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. So if you ever, I don't know, some, some people out there who know about baby doll South Downs and you probably do, if you get yeah. baby doll South Downs, then you're almost a pig farmer. <laughs> Cause they are How like are the roundest, like stoutest yeah. little sheep that are, and they like, they snort like sheep and they, when they're yeah. shorn or sorry, they snort like pigs. When they're shorn, yeah. the sheep looks like a pig. It's very confusing. When they're, the lambs, the, the reason people get these animals is my theory. The reason people get baby doll South Downs is because they see a picture of the lamb. And the lamb looks like and a teddy cute. bear. they're cute, I will oh, give yeah. them that. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, I'm not gonna argue <laughs> with that. <laughs> That's probably how people end up with Pyrenees too. They see yeah, the Pyrenees puppy. <laughs> it's hard to, it's I, hard to beat a Pyrenees puppy. It's true. We, you know, we have our Pyrenees. We're on 40 acres in grizzly country. Mm -hmm. So we have a reason for him. But yeah, he was definitely much cuter as a puppy than he is now where he, he, it doesn't matter how often we trim him. He likes to go bathe in the pond. So (laughs) yeah, that sounds about right. I would too. To his, yeah. yeah. (laughs) To be fair, I would do the same thing as Pyrenees in the summer. Yeah. But then he taught the labs how to do it. So yeah. Oh, nice. Nice. (laughs) Just this crew of like giant wet dogs. Yeah. <laughs> you smell them before you hear them and see them. Right. And then I'm pretty sure my three-year-old thinks he's one of them. So yeah. Oh, nice. Even better. <laughs> yeah. So then he comes back, you know, like muddy too. <laughs> my husband's making fun of me in the background. He showed up. <laughs> I sent him on errands when I couldn't, we couldn't get home. So. Oh, nice. Time management. <laughs> live and buy by die by time management well done right well when you live 40 minutes from town you oh yeah everything. you take advantage so, oh absolutely yeah yeah we we had like a 4-h meeting today we had to go to the bank and <laughs> we brought one car we're not doing this in two vehicles <laughs> <laughs> not with gas prices the way they are right now mm-hmm. so what's your so in when you're homeschooling uh-huh. can you I don't actually know how it works for fair. I've sheared sheep for 4-H groups. So I know how a little bit of how 4-H works. If you're homeschooling, can you still join 4-H or FFA or do you have to enter as an Um, independent? How does it work on on the homeschool side of things for entering fair? Every every state is different. Okay. So um, I know like in our state and, you know, we were in Oregon before. I don't remember what it was for California it doesn't matter. I mean, anybody can join 4-H. Okay. 
So it doesn't matter if you're in school or not. But then like I know gotcha. in the South for sure, a lot mm-hmm. of 4-H is within the school. Gotcha. So you have to be going to the school. Now, like for example, in Idaho for FFA, you can join FFA. You just have to take FFA, the FFA class. So you have to go to school every day uh, for, one, I gotcha. for one period. I gotcha. There's a lot of teenagers that do that. Right. Right. Um, and then, yeah, you're always welcome to show independent, but you know, like our fair open class, there's maybe one animal in it. So that kind of, right, 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 right. Yeah. But, you know, we'll have kids that like, they had a, you know, a barrow that, you know, got an infection when he was castrated. And so he never gained weight. And so they'll bring him and show him in the open class. Just right. To be able to still right. have the experience and stuff. Sure. So. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. But yeah, other than that, I mean, uh, the county that we live in, about 40% of the community homeschools. Wow. It's 40% in boundary. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that. And that doesn't include the Mennonite family. Ah, interesting. So we're probably that is interesting. to, we're probably well over 50% of oh, the community yeah. homeschools. Oh, I'm sure. So oh, that's awesome. It's a really great, I mean, people joke that we're just one big co-op because <laughs> I mean, yeah. we have 4-H, we have meetings at the park. Oh yeah. There are, I think, I think there's five co-ops in town, but you know, everybody's kind of involved with each other. We did a homeschool prom two weeks mm-hmm. ago now. And I mean, there was probably 150 kids there. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah. That yeah, is really it was awesome. a really good time. So we definitely, the kids have really great experiences here. And if we didn't have 4-H, I mean, I think that's half of the kids' education. Yeah, right, here. right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know it is for my kids. I mean, they, we do our basics, but 4-H is pretty mm-hmm. serious to them, so. Oh, yeah, it rounds everything out. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even today was a Cloverbud meeting. We're starting with our five-year-old. And, oh, nice. That's awesome. But I'm a leader for three different groups, so. Oh, cool. Yeah. I did 4-H my whole life and I wasn't going to not let my kids have that opportunity. And if mm-hmm. I'm the leader, then it just, it helps them through the whole program. You yeah, know? sure. Sure. Yeah. What a great and resource. I have six kids. I'm going to be there anyways. Might as well yeah. do it. <laughs> <laughs> so is that, that's one of the things you do is you share 4-H sheep, right? So I have done it in the past. I haven't done any uh, up here yet. It's so okay. usually what I would do in the past. I mean, I did I did do some of the show shearing before they would show, but a big thing mm-hmm. I would do is I would go in and just do a rough shear. I mean, they call it rough shearing. I just call it yeah. sheep shearing. Right. But for them, right. it's rough because we use, yeah, we don't use the fine clippers that are kind of like the clippers you'd use on a horse, right. That people mm-hmm. use for really, really it's grooming at that point before the fair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I have done that too, but, um, we really you don't need to, cows. Oh, yep. Yep. Absolutely. So usually before fair, um, at least, I don't know if it's this way up here um, for Boundary County um, or Bonner, but um, the the fair that I was doing this for before was Ventura County Fair, and we, you know, the the vet required the sheep to be shorn before tagins or at by tagins, basically. So they'd go, they right, they take their animal to the fair, they'd get the ear tag mm-hmm. put in, the vet would look over the animal, make sure it's not sick. And then they'd go home until fair, right? And then they'd bring the animal back. Well, for that shearing, you don't really need to get down close to the skin like you would for a show. And really, it's not great for the animal because usually to do that kind of clipping, you have to wash the animal. And sheep have, um, they have this coating all over their body. They're extremely oily animals. They have lanolin all over their body. Mm-hmm. And so if you if you take that lanolin away by washing the animal in order to use these fine clippers so that they don't get doled up by dirt and all these other things that are going to be caught in the wool. Um, you kind of strip that barrier away from the animal. And then they're most more susceptible to things like ringworm, especially if they're giving, being kept with other sheep and people are touching them, yeah. right. As is often the case when you're raising a lamb. Um, mm-hmm. So being able to kind of just do a traditional shearing on them prior to tagins was great because it would eliminate that whole washing thing. They could leave all the lanolin on until just before fair, leaving the, the lambs a lot less susceptible to any kind of skin issues that might come up. And that's a kind of a big, I mean, ringworm is a big deal in, um, in fairs because the animals are in close proximity to each other. Everyone's touching them, right? They've, they've had all their, they've been washed and scrubbed down. I mean, squeaky clean is good, but it's not good for a long period of time. Right. I mean, if the animal doesn't get those defenses back, it can be kind of a problem. So, um, that was a big thing I would do. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Just like us. Right. I mean, yeah. If you, Mm -hmm. if you just, you know, if you just bathe all the time over and over and over, you're going to get skin problems. So you cannot just be that clean all the time. 
Well, I think I bathe my kids that often, but then they go back and roll in the manure pile. So we're even. <laughs> yeah, they put the seasoning back on, right? Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's like a cast iron skillet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this might be outside of your wheelhouse, but this has been a question that I've actually been asked myself and I did a ton mm-hmm. of research and couldn't find an answer. Mm-hmm. How does lanolin affect the meat when you're uh, butchering? Oh, that's an excellent question. Okay, so I don't have any hard research, right? There's no peer-reviewed studies on this as far as I know. But from the people I've talked to and the farms I've been on that butcher their own animals, the the ones that are really particular about the product, you know, some people just want the meat and they, they I mean, the more kind of gamey and sheepy and muttony that it tastes, the better, right, for some people. But for a lot of people, they don't want that, right? And so for the people who don't want that, yeah. the piece of advice that I have heard is do not get anything that has been on the outside of that animal touching the meat when you butcher. So when you go to skin the animal, okay. you need to be very cautious that the arm or the hand that you're using to grab the pelt to, to skin it is not the same arm or hand that you're using to touch the meat. If you do need to touch the meat at some point, generally speaking, when you're skinning it, you shouldn't have to touch the carcass as you're pulling the skin off. But in some cases it happens. And my, from my understanding, that is kind of what ends up tainting the meat is if you do get the lanolin. Because lanolin serves um, to allow, the, the way I've seen it serve this purpose is between um, ewes and lambs. It's a, there's a scent connection between the ewe and the lamb. And so often, so one, one thing that, this is kind of slightly tangential, but does come back to the whole um, tainting of the meat thing. When you flip a sheep on its butt, to shear it. And that's how I shear. I shear New Zealand style. So you, you take all the, to use the term of the, the, the guy who taught me to do it originally, you have to disengage the sheep's four wheel drive. So you have to take all of their hooves off of the ground so that they can't just get up and walk away during shearing. Right. So yeah, that makes sense. So when you flip, when you disengage the four wheel drive before shearing and you flip them on their butt, generally if it's the first time you've ever seen shearing, it can be kind of shocking to see a sheep in that position because mm-hmm. you're seeing the belly and you're seeing kind of the inside of the rear legs and the inside of the front legs. And you've never seen that before. Cause unless you have like gotten on like a creeper and rolled under a sheep, like you're checking the oil, <laughs> there's no way you would have seen it. Right. This is just like a mystery to most people. So you flip it over and it's like, Whoa, all the lights down there. It was like all stuff I'd never seen before. Oh, One okay. thing that people are shocked about is kind of right next to the udders kind of like uh you might call it like the the armpit of the rear legs right like tucked in there kind of mm-hmm. in their crotch area there are two ducts that um, secrete a significant amount of lanolin and over the year usually dust gets in there and dirt and so it looks kind of black and nasty but it's actually it's it's not it's quite clean um but it's right next to the udder and the the scent that the you produces i think is produced there in that location at by design right that the lamb is that's where the lamb needs to go for milk right and that's where the lamb's going to go and be like oh this is my mother because it smells like my mother that's my theory right so the lanolin does have a very strong smell and so if you were to get that on the meat it's probably going to taste like lanolin and lanolin for someone who's not a sheep person does not smell very good once you're around sheep i think once you're around (laughs) sheep long enough it starts to smell kind of like sweet and nice. I, I, I think that, but mm-hmm. it's, it's one of those things you got to just be, I mean, it's like, if, right. Someone who's really into raising hogs. It, yeah. We don't mind the smell at all. You don't mind. It just, it smells like, Oh, this smells like, I don't know. This smells like raising hogs this is normal. But if right? someone comes to your farm, has never seen a pig in real life, comes to the farm is like, what on earth is that smell? <laughs> oh, that's, well, that's, I didn't notice that. Yeah. I forgot. Those are my hogs. Yeah. That's just well, what they smell In our like. case, we live next door to a maggot farm. So oh, usually nice. they're like, what is that smell? It is not us. It's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They come to, they come to your place to get a break from the maggot farm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Absolutely. So that's like, one thing. That's like a huge thing. Like don't, don't, I mean, and this is true. I mean, I've, you know, I've dressed out a handful of deer and mm-hmm. uh, one thing you always hear when you're dressing out a deer is the scent glands on their back legs. Do not touch that and then go touching the meat because then your meat is going to all taste like that. And it's not a pleasant taste. It's going to be the same idea. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So yeah, Yeah, outside of the animal, keep it off the inside of the animal. Yeah, totally. I feel dressed a lot of deer. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, that same area in California where the extension office is, was my family's ranch. We were down. Oh, lots of deer. Yep. Lots Lots of deer deer and lots of pig. My dad was Mm -hmm. a big hunting guide. Awesome. So yeah, spent a lot of time in those woods. Oh yeah. It's beautiful down there. 
Oh yeah. I mean, I, I, I wish it wasn't the way it is, but it's beautiful yes. up here and I'm happy. I'm happy yeah. here. Yeah. Not, not <laughs> as big actually... a feral pig problem here, which is nice. No, unless it's our pigs who got out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My yard looks like it did in California, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so if someone wanted to, you know, get started with sheep and, you know, just kind of, do you have like just a handful of like some quick steps on where they should research, who they should talk to, some of those types of, you know, get yeah, going. Absolutely. Yeah. So you've got, you've got an audience that is international, I believe at this point, pretty much, mm-hmm. right. You've got people listening yeah. to you all over the world. So I can speak to the United States. Yep. It's going to be really hard for a you A lot of people in, uh. Yeah, I have a lot of people. Um, actually, my biggest out of state, uh, out of country is Canada, Australia, New Zealand. So I believe it. I believe. Okay, yeah. so Australia, New Zealand, you want to get sheep? Just go talk to your neighbor. Chances are they either have sheep or they know somebody directly, like one degree of separation from someone who keeps sheep. Right. <laughs> right. Chances are, unless you're in a city, like yeah. if you're in Auckland or you're in Wellington in New Zealand or you're Melbourne or Sydney, you may not have that one degree, probably two degrees. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah, right? In the United States, <laughs> United States, you man, you'd be in a big city in the United States and not have five degrees of separation from There's someone who's got sheep. There's people that don't even know what a sheep is. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah. They think sheep and goats are the same thing. So, mm. okay. So if you're in the United States, the one thing I would first figure out is who your state um, small ruminant specialist is. Right, figure okay. out which office that is. It's going to be an extension office, likely. Um, and figure out if your state's extension office has any publications on raising sheep or raising goats. Sometimes they get lumped together. Depending on the state you're in, you, you might have a separate publication or separate resources for sheep and goats. Um, that's going to be a really good first step because chances are... Um, you're going to be getting information that's tailored to your state, right? And each state, I mean, like Idaho, for example, I mean, we have vastly varying topography and climate and all that in the state of Idaho. And the same is going to be true for a lot of the other bigger states. Um, Even some of the smaller states are going to have really varied microclimates and things. So, but it's going to be a good approximation, right? And so once you get those resources from whoever the, you know, the state organization or specialist is, then you can kind of zero in on your county. And if your county doesn't have a small ruminant specialist, don't be surprised. Many counties don't, right? But they can probably direct you to somebody in the state, in the extension system, that can get you the resources you need for your area. Because if they're a specialist in small ruminants, and they live like, let's say, let's take Idaho, for example, you've got a, a specialist in small ruminants that's in southern Idaho in the Treasure Valley. Well, the the climate is totally different, right? And the sheep that yeah. are good down there are not going to be the sheep that are good up here. But that person's going to know what sheep yeah. would be good up here, right? Because if they know sheep, they're going to know, they're going to be able to point you in the right direction in terms yeah. of which, you know, breed selection, for example, which one do you want? Um, another really good resource is just going to be like what we're doing right here. I mean, there are so many really cool podcasts and YouTube channels really and things are. that you can I go actually... to. It's amazing. I have a podcast saved that I want to go listen to, and it is from a small ruminant extension office, mm-hmm. I think, uh, somewhere back east. I don't remember. Which mm-hmm. one. Yeah, I d- I'm not sure exactly when, which one you're talking about, but there is one um, called Sheep Stuff You Should Know. And yes, it is E-W-E, because <laughs> if sheep people are good at nothing else, it is like making puns with sheep terms. <laughs> um, so Sheep Stuff You Should Know, that's a really good one. Um uh, one person who is like a co-host on there is Dr. Rosie Bush, and she's the state small ruminant um, okay. veterinarian for California. And she's got she's tons of tons of really good resources and really good information, and they cover a vast array of topics. So if you want to know something like, hey, I'm just starting, and I have a question about lambing, okay, well, go through their podcast and find the one on lambing, and they're probably going to cover um, the questions you have. That's a really cool resource. Nice. I love um, that. Yeah, and then. Yeah, get in touch with, if, if you're just totally lost and you have no idea what to do, find someone locally that has sheep. Okay, they, they, I okay. promise you they exist. And so a couple of good I points. Have, of- you know, it's one of those ones I know someone too. Like when we first started getting getting started with dairy goats, I knew uh, mm-hmm. meat goats. I didn't know dairy goats. Mm-hmm. And I, I was able to find a mentor that I was going oh, yeah. to her house mm-hmm. in the middle of the night and get the medications I needed. Oh, yeah. Like that. It's huge. So get that. I would say like before anything, 
if you have the animals already, which is often the case, you know, people work backwards. I do the same thing. I got rabbits yeah, and I was like, I how do that. I raise rabbits? <laughs> I should have asked that question before getting the rabbits, but whatever, that's how right. it goes. <laughs> so if you're in that position, just find someone locally that has them. Chances are they're going to be open to guiding you because everyone's been a beginner. Everyone knows what it's like to get your first animal of whatever species, right? You just, you just got to uh -huh. figure it out on the fly and they're generally going to be willing to help you. Um, so one great place to look, just go to a feed store, go to your local feed store and say, who raises sheep around here? How do, and okay. how do I get in touch with them? Usually they're going to have the contact info for them, or you can just leave your contact info and you know, the guy's going to be showing up the next day for his, Hey, anyway, or whatever. And they can put you in touch with them. That's a really cool way to get in touch with people locally. Um, and that's going to give you even better information, I think, than a, than a state specialist that's not in your county, because I mean, this is someone who's in your community, okay. I, right? In I, your I immediate area. That. So that's a, that's, that's a really good place to start. I, that's something I teach on a lot, actually, is make sure that you find someone that fits your climate. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that goes for anything, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that goes for what snowblower do I buy, right? It doesn't, <laughs> right? <laughs> doesn't have not just animals and raising vegetables and all this. It's, it's, it's everything. So having that community is huge. So that's yeah. where I would start. Uh, I mean, there's no, there's no, okay. there are a few good books, right? But yeah, I mean, I, I mean, mm -hmm. any of the really popular um, how to raise sheep books are going to have useful information in them, um, but it's not going to be everything. I mean, there's there's emerging research all the time on what we should do. For example, one thing that's emerging now is um, uh, dewormers, right? So, so the the conventional thought on dewormers has always been, well, you got to rotate them, right? Well, mm -hmm. we've they've actually discovered now a lot of the research that's coming out is showing that rotating dewormers and this is a good thing to go to sheep stuff you should know that podcast they, they've done uh -huh. tons of, of coverage on this um, they've discovered that rotating dewormers is actually kind of the perfect recipe for creating worms that are resistant to dewormer so there's yeah the, in sheep and I, I can't speak to other livestock I'm guessing the principle mm -hmm. would carry over but maybe it doesn't maybe it's only a sheep thing but um, that's kind of an interesting thing because that's been the conventional wisdom for a very very long time and they're actually discovering uh -huh. no actually it's kind of a recipe for disaster people who worm preemptively right or deworm preemptively it's it's largely shown now that it's it's a bad idea it's a deworm if you don't have to right unless you see symptoms probably shouldn't be administering dewormer um kind of like antibiotics, right? We don't want to give antibiotics all the time because then you're just creating a, a breeding ground for bacteria that don't care about the antibiotic anymore, right? That's exactly the truth. Um, but I, you know, I like bringing up that conversation because it is important to know when you should, when you shouldn't. And oh yeah, it's huge. Because I see so many uh, like new farmers, new homesteaders say, mm -hmm. Oh, I'm not going to give any commercial medications. Right, and right, right. Like, that's right. like, like, you know, you bring yeah. a new animal onto your property, yep. you get them all this stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. Start them fresh, you know. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of those things where there's two ends of the the spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. You've got the extreme ends, yeah. and generally speaking, as in most things, there's a lot of nuance. And there's a lot of, well, it depends, right? A lot of people don't like the uh -huh. well, it depends. And that's why you get so many people at the extremes. So that's my experience with most right. things anyway. It's hard to sit there in that nuanced middle ground and have to grapple with the question, right? That's, that's hard. You know, I had my moments as my own. You know, I, I, were, I grew up in commercial farming. I mm -hmm. majored in commercial farming. I worked in commercial farming. Yep. And now I'm definitely outside of that bubble. And I have to even grapple with myself a little bit on... Oh, yeah. Oh, it's spring. We better go worm everybody. And I'm like, yeah. oh, really? <laughs> right. I have no right. reason to believe that right. anybody needs right. to be wormed. The worm yeah. load is always there. It's whether mm -hmm. or not we have it under control. Totally. Yeah, totally. I when, mean, and that's, yeah, you know, it's we're, we're like piglets are really susceptible to worms. Mm -hmm. So before I send a piglet away, I worm them before they leave my property mm -hmm. so that I'm not sending out an animal that's going to get to someone else's property and just go and just collapse. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a targeted approach is best for most things, which is which is kind of mm -hmm. it's cool that the Whereas that the research is showing that. Yeah, my sows they almost never get wormed. I do fit more things like diatomaceous earth, and I put mm -hmm. uh, pumpkins and stuff like that out there. And if I see yep. someone getting sick, or if somebody goes to fair with us or something, then mm -hmm. you do all those things. Right, but you can keep the you can keep it at a controllable level, right? With mm -hmm. by being proactive and watching them, and yeah, 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 it's that's that's great. Yeah. Especially in the spring when the grass is really short and they're like mm -hmm. eating right down to the dirt. Oh, so, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so we're about to the end of our time. So I have to ask, what does keep growing mean to you? Keep growing. 
Mm-hmm. Oh man, uh, never stop asking questions. Never be afraid to say, I don't know. And never be afraid to ask for help. I love that. That is, it is so important to be able to be, to be willing to learn. Oh yeah. Oh, uh, do you want to tell everyone where they can find you or? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not actually findable on social media okay. because I'm not on social media, <laughs> but I do have a website. It's hollandbackshearing.com okay. and there is a contact okay. me page. I have email. Okay. I'm not like All completely right. in the stone age and I do have a, a mobile phone on there. If anybody wants to contact me about shearing or sheep related things, by all means, you can. I shear right. typically just in this region. So kind of the panhandle right. of All Idaho. Right. Um, and, and I do. Be... Oh, sorry. Y'all go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, and then you're going to be speaking next week, which I think I'm actually going to, I might air this on Tuesday just for that reason. Oh, cool. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. that'll be great. I think the Inlander, um, which is kind of a regional publication, is going to be doing a little uh, spot for the for the Modern Homesteading Conference, too. So that'll Ooh, be cool fun. to keep an eye out for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I'll be there at the Modern Homesteading Conference. I'm going to do a talk about um, kind of just sheep sharing on the homestead. And so kind of what that looks like for the sheep owner, what that looks like for the sheep, what that looks like for the shearer, so that you can kind of, we can kind of close the, the loop on that. Because a lot of people, they just don't know what to expect when a shearer comes. So that'll be yeah. kind of a, a good one. And then, you know, how to use the wool and some of the stuff we talked about um, tonight. Nice. I love that. Um, are you, will you be doing an actual demonstration or just talking about it? There will be a live sharing demonstration. Yes. Well, I'll have to see if I can make it over to that. Yes, absolutely. And I think think the people who are, so Wingsong Farm is a local Shetland sheep farm, uh, here in Uh the area and they're going to be providing the sheep. And I, I've asked that they bring a few extras. So if you miss the main demo, I'll have a few at my booth and I'm going to do some periodically for the people who can't make it. Cause I know it's hard. It's like, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to miss a really cool talk but you want to see the shearing or whatever, I'll, I'll have a few more. Well, so. and it's hard because I'm speaking to and have to run my booth. The whole oh yeah. Time, so. Oh yeah. No, it's yeah. I've been looking yeah. at the schedule. It's crazy. I'm, I will not see nearly what it, you know, all the things I want to see, but that's but why my I, wife's I, coming. I, She's going to take great notes and, and probably learn more I, than I would have learned anyway. I'm bringing my husband and kids, which my husband travels to a lot of these with me. So he's seen a lot of these speakers. Before. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And so of the kids, actually my kids have traveled more than my husband has. So. <laughs> Good for them. Like they have their friends that they go and seek out at these conferences. So, but I was excited. Oh, awesome. I, we got the, we got the uh, <clears throat> map in the mail yesterday mm-hmm. of where I'm going to be. And mm-hmm. I'm like right next to my favorite makeup company, Toots and Co. <laughs> which well, my husband was like, that. that is, my husband's like, that's terrible. But I'm like, my friend isn't going to be there because she's had a baby. Oh, um, the owner, she was supposed to come and speak, but she's had a baby oh, okay. last week. So. And then I'm like right next to a homesteading family and pioneering today. It's going to be like, I'm just right in this like corner Uh of all these just really Mm -hmm. wonderful people. It's going to be such a great experience. That is awesome. I love it. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to meeting you in person. Yeah, for sure. Well, we will be sure and find you and we'll probably see you at the dinner on Thursday night. Yep. Yep. We'll see you then. All right. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, Cody. Sounds good. We'll see you then. Uh, Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me today at the Homestead Education, and I hope that I have given you something to think about this week. To help others find me, please comment and leave a review on your favorite podcast player. You can also follow me on Facebook at the Homestead Education and Instagram at homestead underscore education. Do you have questions that you would like answered or just want to say hi? Please email me at hello at the homesteadeducation.com. Until next time, keep growing!